Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Let's look at verses 44 through 52 of Matthew chapter 13. This is how Jesus concludes his kingdom parables, and this is the Word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he found the one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And then they sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, Go and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would preach these words to us anew by the Holy Spirit, that we too can understand and own and possess the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. We pray this to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this last section of parables on the kingdom of heaven, we see that like the others, Jesus mixes together different elements while emphasizing a particular theme. And in this case... That theme is the kingdom of heaven as treasure. The kingdom of heaven as treasure. In the middle, we have then the parable of the dragnet, which echoes the earlier parables of the sower and the parable of the tares. And it carries forth the theme of many being called into the kingdom of heaven, but over time testing and distinguishing and the bad being separated out from among the just. And here, the particular emphasis of the dragnet parable is on the kingdom going to the nations, going to the Gentiles, and all sorts of Gentiles coming into the kingdom. And that emphasis appears in the typology here of the sea. The dragnet is cast in the sea. In the Old Testament, the sea is often used as a typological symbol of the Gentile nations. One example is in Isaiah chapter 60, in a famous passage there, where it says, The Lord, speaking to the Christ, the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And it goes on to say, And your heart shall swell with joy. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, 
And then he explains what that means. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. So that's how he says that in Hebrew poetry. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you is a way of saying that the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings shall come to thee. They shall come to Christ and pay him tribute as Lord and own him as Lord. So the picture here once again is that there is a lot going on in the kingdom. The kingdom is something that goes forward inexorably. We know that the kingdom is like the mustard seed that becomes the great tree that covers the earth. We know that it is like leaven that enters in and ends up uh, leavening and transforming uh, the whole lump. But as it goes forward, it goes forward with a lot of action uh, and a lot of, uh, you might even say, chaos and messiness and things going on, all kinds of people being drawn in to the kingdom all the time, and then a lot of sorting out that happens uh, afterwards. And we've seen that that happens periodically, certainly in history, like it did with the destruction of Jerusalem. God orchestrates historical events by which he very effectively separates uh, the righteous uh, the wheat from the tares, so to speak. But, of course, that happens finally and definitively on the last day. And this particular theme of, of the kingdom going forward in this way uh, goes way back in Scripture. Uh, consider the temple, which was built by Solomon per the Lord's own instructions. Now, God commanded Solomon where it was to be built. In fact, he had already told David this. And he specified that the temple was to be built on the site of the threshing floor where the angel of death had stopped after David had sinned by taking a census. God commanded David to go there to buy that property and to sacrifice to him there. So it's not by accident that the temple is to be built on the site of this threshing floor. The point is that the temple is not only the place where God's presence dwells. It's not only the place where heaven and earth meet. It's not only the place where death stops and life begins. It is also a threshing floor. It is a place from where wheat is separated from chaff, wheat separated from tares, it is where good seed is separated from bad, that which bears fruit separated from that which does not. And so we know, of course, that the temple of God is really a picture of the people of God. We're the temple of God. Uh, Paul says twice in 1 Corinthians, speaking to uh, Christians collectively, he says, you, y'all, you all are the temple of God. And he says to them individually, your body is the temple of God because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. The, whole, uh, the presence of God dwells there. And so we get this picture that the, that the church, the temple of God is supposed to be a glorious place. It's where His presence is. It's where death stops and life begins. It's where heaven and earth meet. And yet, it is, it is a messy place. It is a messy place. There is all kinds of things coming in. There's all kinds of sorting out that God does there. It is by God's design a messy place. So you think about a threshing floor. You think what comes from that, all the wheat coming in. And that's beautiful. And that's glorious. And we think about that. 
but a threshing floor is not a clean place. It is a messy place, and it's a busy place, and there's a lot going on there. So this is the backdrop, then, to Jesus' uh, parables that have to do with the kingdom as treasure. And so let's look at those. Jesus both opens this section and he closes it with this theme of the kingdom of heaven as treasure. He begins with the parables of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, which have to do with acquiring the kingdom as treasure and as personal treasure. And then he ends with the parable of the householder, which has to do with giving out treasure, bringing it out and giving it out, treasure pertaining to the kingdom. So let's look then at the treasure of the, uh, the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. The point of both of these parables is the same. And the fact that Jesus tells two parables with the same point shows that he's really trying to place emphasis on this point. And that point is this. The kingdom of heaven is worth far more than everything you have and everything you hold dear. The treasure of the kingdom of heaven is worth more than everything you have and everything you hold dear. That is the foundation point for these two parables. And that's why the two men in these parables are not crazy. They're not crazy to sell everything to purchase one thing. And if you think about that, in most any circumstance you can imagine, somebody would be crazy to do that. What can you name? that a person would not have lost their sense if they sold everything to have one thing. Only this. Only the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. But because it is of such infinite value, what these men did was the only logical, sane thing to do. They behave perfectly, logically, and sanely. To give everything you have, to give your life as you know it, to give your hopes and dreams as they have been, to possess this one thing called the kingdom of heaven. Which raises the question, what does it mean for an individual to possess the kingdom of heaven as treasure? What does it mean for you? to possess the kingdom of heaven as treasure. I mean, we've already learned from Jesus that the kingdom of heaven encompasses everything. It's going to fill the earth. It's going to cover the earth. It's going to reign over the earth. How then can it be possessed as a personal treasure? Well, we see then here this paradox that the kingdom of heaven is both infinitely large and infinitely small. It is both all-encompassing and interpenetrating. It is both the mustard seed tree that covers over all, and it is the leaven, the little pinch, that enters in. And we see that this is the way the kingdom of heaven covers the earth and rules the earth, by entering individuals' hearts and by ruling them. It is a kingdom that conquers as individuals come to realize 
the infinite value of the kingdom of heaven and to voluntarily give up everything they call mine in order to have this treasure called the kingdom of heaven. So what does it look like then when somebody does come to value the kingdom of heaven as treasure above all? What does it look like when they have it and take it as their own personal treasure? Well, it's what Jesus has been telling us about throughout this gospel. It's what he told us about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what he told us to pray. It's the heart he told us to have when we pray. It is the heart that above all things says, Our Father who art in heaven. In other words, it is the heart that addresses God as Father. To have the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven as your treasure, is to have God as your Father. To look upon Him as your Father. To relate to Him as your Father. To pray to Him as your Father. And it is to have as your first thought that His name be hallowed. That His name be exalted. That His name be magnified. That His name be thanked. That everybody know Him. That everybody adore Him. That everybody worship Him and give Him thanks. And value Him and exalt Him and seek to please Him in all things. And it is to have with each of our breaths this prayer that His kingdom, His reign would come. And that His will would be done everywhere just as it is in heaven. It's what Jesus was talking about when He opened the Sermon on the Mount when He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is to have this hunger and thirst. And remember, righteousness in the Bible is not like, it's not like merits in some kind of a bank account. Righteousness in the Bible has to do with faithfulness and love in a personal relationship. Righteousness is what makes a husband love his wife, as Christ has loved the church, a bride to love her own husband. That's what righteousness is. It is doing what is right in the context of a relationship. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be faithful to God, to know Him, to make Him known, to walk with Him, and to have the whole world do the same. This is what Jesus had in mind when He said, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. Don't be worried about these other things. Yes, you need them, but your Father knows you need them. He knows you need them before you ask. And yes, you ask. I'm telling you to ask. But you seek first His reign, His kingdom, and His righteousness. And remember, when you hear the kingdom of heaven, that's what it means. The kingdom of heaven, think the reign of heaven. The reign of heaven, R-E-I-G-N, reign, the rule of heaven. And Matthew, being a very Hebrew writer, heaven was a way of referring to God. It's a very respectful way of referring to God in a very Hebrew way. And so in the other Gospels, you have it referred to as the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. So the kingdom of heaven means the reign and the rule of God everywhere, joyfully, not over unwilling people, but over willing and joyful people, and starting with me. Starting with me, the reign of God with me in my heart and going out from there 
over the earth. Now, in these two parables, both of these men sell everything they have so they can personally own the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. But there are some slight differences in these two parables. Notice that the man in the pearl, with the pearl of great price, he sells everything to buy the pearl directly. He buys the pearl directly. Whereas the man with the treasure in the field doesn't. He finds the treasure, and of course the way things would work uh, at that time is that the, if the treasure is in somebody else's field and it's treasure is buried treasure, it would belong to the one who owns the field. Well, this man doesn't own the field. So he rehides the treasure. He finds it. He realizes what it is. He rehides it. He sells everything he has so he can buy the field so that then he can own the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. So it seems to me that both of these parables have echoes from the life of Jacob, whose life, I think, was governed a lot by what is valuable, the whole thought of what is valuable and what do you give up for what is valuable. The pearl of great price seems to echo Jacob and Rachel. You remember that Jacob, in order to marry Rachel, had to serve her brother Laban for seven years. For seven years he had to wait. For seven years he had to be Laban's servant. But it says that it seemed to Jacob but a few days because of his love for her. Seven years is a long time. Seven years is a long time. It's a long time to wait. It's a long time to work. And Laban was not a good guy to work for. He was very crafty. He changed Jacob's wages ten times. He kept changing them. God would bless Jacob so Laban would change things so Jacob uh, wouldn't benefit so much. So Jacob had to serve long and hard, but his focus was not on what he was given up. If he had focused on what he was given up, that would have been the longest seven years of his life. It would have seemed to be an eternity. But his focus was on what he was getting and the value of what he was getting. And so it seemed to him like a few days. Rachel was the pearl of great price to Jacob in this story. And so he gave up all of this to win her. And the treasure in the field seems to echo the uh, story between Jacob and his brother Esau, where Jacob purchases the birthright. Esau, of course, was the firstborn. And so the birthright would normally go to him. But Jacob was faced with a situation where nobody seemed to value the birthright. And of course, we know here the birthright was more than the birthright because God is behind this birthright. This has to do with God's covenant and God's kingdom and his blessings. It has to do with that. And so it was, it was very, very valuable. But Jacob is faced with two people who don't value it. First of all, his brother Esau doesn't value it. He has it. It's his. He hasn't done anything to earn it. It's just his. It's, on his, it's like the, the treasure that's buried in his land. It's just there. But, but Esau doesn't even seem to know about it, much less care or care to know about it. I mean, yeah, if you, if you come around to it, yeah, he knows he has it, but he doesn't have any value of it. And sadly, most of all, Jacob's father didn't seem to value it as he should. 
Isaac's eyes had become dim in more than one way. He couldn't see, but his loss of physical eyesight reflected his loss of spiritual eyesight. Because God had already said, when Jacob and Esau were in the womb, God had already prophesied that the older was going to serve the younger, which was another way of God saying that my covenant blessing is going with the younger. It is going with Jacob. So Isaac knows that Jacob is the chosen, he's the chosen seed. He's the chosen type of Christ who is to come, not Esau. And yet Isaac is bound and determined to give the birthright to his oldest son in spite of the word of God. So Isaac isn't valuing it properly either. And we know that this story has a lot of twists and turns. We know that Rachel comes up with the the scheme to deceive Isaac. And Jacob uh, goes along with that. He's already purchased the birthright from Esau. You remember that story. Because Esau wants some stew. And Jacob has the stew. So Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. So Esau sells it. So how much value does he place on it? How much value does he place on the kingdom of God? Not much. Less. Less than a bowl of stew. So you see the difference in how they evaluate things. But Isaac is still bound and determined to give it to his oldest son because he loves to eat of Esau's game. Now, you know, I don't have time to really go into this in detail, but Jacob gets a really, really bad rap. Um, we tend to think of Esau as, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's the quarterback of the high school football team. He's the, he's the gridiron star, man. He's a man's man. He's, he's a great guy. I mean, he's handsome. He's buff. He's, you know, he's all of that. It, it, you know, everything, everything. It's just, if he only had Jesus, you know. And Jacob, he's this sniveling nerd. He's the guy on the chess team, you know, who works down at the bank. And he runs for uh, the treasurer of the high school class, you know. And he's that guy that nobody likes. But, you know, just if you've got Jesus, you know, that's the point. That's just not the way the Bible presents it. You know, it says in the Bible that uh, Esau was a, he says that he was a, he was a man of the feel, but that Jacob was a mild man. Complete mistranslation of the Hebrew. So this, that feeds into our stereotype of, Jesus, of Esau as the man's man, Jacob is this little girly, girly man. Um, no, the word there translated mild is perfect. It says that Esau was a man of the field, and that Jacob was a perfect man. It's not, you know, you, you have the story later on where uh, there's a, a stone that is rolled over uh, a well, a place. And Jacob rolls it out of the way. He gets it off. They can't get it off. Jacob gets it off. He's not some little girly man. The thing is, what it's saying is, is that Esau was a beast, He's a guy who literally sees more value in a bowl of stew than in his birthright, which is connected to the kingdom of God. That's who he is. He's a beast. 
Jacob is a guy who understands the proper values of life. So anyway, Jacob, he buys the uh, birthright from Esau. He has the appropriate valuation. So the point of the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price is the same. And it has to do with this infinite value of the treasure of the kingdom. Both of the men in these parables sell everything they have so they can personally own the treasure of the kingdom. And you notice it says they are joyful. It says in the first one, the treasure of the field, and for joy over it. For joy over the treasure, he sells everything and buys the field. With the pearl of great price, it says that the man is seeking beautiful pearls. What's motivating him? Beauty, which is connected with value. So they're not focused on what they're giving up. They're focused on what they're gaining. And it's because, and it's not a matter of psychology. It's not like, okay, these two weirdos convince themselves that these two single items are worth more than everything, and they sold everything to have it, and it's like, whatever, you know, whatever works for you, that's crazy, but whatever works for you. No, the whole point of the parable is the things have infinite value. They made the right choice. That's Jesus' point. But they rejoice because they're focused on what they're getting and the infinite value of the kingdom of heaven. They're not focused on what they're giving up. If you focused on what you're giving up, that makes you like another character in the Bible, Lot's wife. She's focused on what she's giving up. Despite all the problems in Sodom and Gomorrah and everything else, what she's leaving behind, her nice house, her nice upper middle class neighborhood, you know, all of those things. And so she's looking back. She's looking back. She's not focused on what she is getting. Another person in the Bible who's focused on what they're giving up is the older brother and the prodigal son parable. He's focusing on all his work. Unlike Jacob, he's focusing on how much he has to work and how much he has to give. He's not focused on the inheritance that he is getting by virtue of being a son. And so he's sour. He's sour. But these men in these parables are not sour. They're full of joy because of what they're gaining. So the idea of giving up all you have for the kingdom of heaven is something that would become very real to Jesus' listeners and to the others living in that generation. For in less than 40 years... Everything near and dear to them would be laid waste. The Jewish-Roman War would come, and by 70 A.D., it is just going to be a smoking wasteland. That's all that is going to be left. And so holding on to life as you knew it, or else giving it all up for the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has just inaugurated, that was not just an abstract parable for them. It was a real-life choice that they were going to be facing. So it was certainly true for the Jewish believers. But it was also true for the Gentile believers in the first century as well. Because as the Jewish-Roman War approached in the mid-60s A.D., Nero would begin to persecute Christians. 
And so this was a real-life choice that the Gentile believers were going to have to face too. Giving up everything that you knew, life as you knew it, everything you held dear, giving all of that up for the kingdom of heaven or not. And this is why Jesus, his letters in the book of Revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor, what's the theme in all of these letters? Overcoming. Overcoming. Not just hanging on. Overcoming. This tough circumstances, he ends every one of the letters with he who overcomes and the blessings to them. To one of the churches, he says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see there the, the kingdom theme and the reigning theme, but they had a real choice to make. Now, Many generations of Christians don't have to face that kind of a stark historical choice in their lifetimes. There are many generations of Christians that have come and gone who did not face that. But periodically, a generation of Christians does have to face that choice. They face either losing everything that they've known and held dear for the kingdom of heaven or turning away from the kingdom of heaven to hold on to what they think is theirs. But regardless of when we live and regardless of the situation, the choice of ultimate values, of what you value the most, of what you prize, is one every generation of Christians faces, and it is one every single Christian faces. For each one of you, each one of you, this issue is the ultimate issue of life today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. What do you prize? What do you value the most? What do you think has the most value? What you do prize, what you do value most, will show up in countless ways in your life, and it will dictate the course of your life. And remember, when the final day of sorting comes, entering into heaven or hell is not a departure from the path you have been on. It is rather an arrival at the destination to which you have been traveling all along. It is an arrival. Okay. So the ultimate issue here, and I think this is very important for us to see, the ultimate issue here is not what you choose, but what you prize. It's not what you choose, it's what you prize. Because what you prize is what you will desire most. And what you desire most is what you will choose. And that's the way Jesus approaches that. Jesus focuses on awakening our realization to the infinite value of God's reign in our lives, and in the whole world. And he's doing that in order to awaken our desire for that above all things. It is the realization of the value of God's reign in our lives and in the world, and the corresponding desire for that, that then drives our sacrifice and commitment. 
not the other way around. It's not sacrifice and commitment up front as some kind of a raw, stoic-type deal. It is valuing the right things, understanding what has the most value, prizing that, producing that desire within us. And that, then, is what produces the sacrifice and uh, the commitment. So being godly is not a matter of not desiring. It is a matter of desiring the right things and desiring them with all of one's heart. In Hebrews, it warns Christians. It says, don't be like Esau. He said, take care, be careful that none of you have a profane or a godless heart like Esau had who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. That's a godless heart. So you see, being godly or godless is not a matter of desiring or not desiring. It's a matter of desiring the right thing. And how do you, why do you desire the right thing? Because you evaluate the right thing. You have the right values. You appraise the right thing. You prize the right thing. Your heart is always going to be with your treasure, with whatever you value the most. So Jesus is drawing on the fact here that we were created and redeemed for our greatest desire to be for God and for His reign in our hearts and in the world. That's what we were created for. This is not some new thing that's added on now that we've fallen and we need to have salvation. This is what we were created for. This was the issue in the Garden of Eden. And this is also what we are redeemed for, to have our greatest desire for God and for His kingdom. And this is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. All these other things will be added to you. So Jesus here isn't trying to kill desire and turn us into Stoics or Buddhists. Christ is not encouraging a begrudging Stoic sacrifice and commitment to Him and His kingdom. He is talking rather about a love and a desire that makes everything else pale into insignificance. So that we become like Jacob, who worked for seven years and it seemed like but a few days. We become like these men in these parables who are not focused on what they're given up because they understand what they're getting. If you pursue Christ and His kingdom, and this is important, if you pursue Christ and His kingdom, everybody around you is going to benefit. And the entire world is going to benefit. But there is an important sense in which you must do this for yourself. You notice that these men in these parables acted for themselves. Now, we hesitate to even say that kind of thing because it sounds uh, selfish. It sounds selfish. But really, biblically, it isn't. It is something that you have to do before yourself before you can do it for anybody else. If you're doing it for any other reason, for your family, for your job, for your marriage, for your children, 
for your friends, so you don't let people down, so you don't uh, violate people's expectations. There is a real risk that you're going to become focused on what you're sacrificing, and then you're going to grow weary, and you may hit the wall. Basically, the Bible teaches us this. You cannot do anything for anybody else unless you're doing the main thing for yourself. And that is seeking Christ and His kingdom. Think about the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've mentioned before how on, uh, when you're flying on a commercial airliner, they always tell you what to do in case of emergency. Should the cabin lose cabin pressure, you know, the air, the oxygen mass fall out in front of you. And they say, if you have children, put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then help your child. I remember the first time I heard that, I said, that just sounds, it's counterintuitive, that sounds selfish, self-centered. You know, why wouldn't you think of your child first? Well, you are. If you're not breathing, if you're not alive, you can't help them. And that, I think, is the same kind of thing Jesus is emphasizing here. The greatest thing you can do for anybody is to awaken in them the realization of the infinite value of the reign of God in their life and in the world through Christ. And how can you do that for them if you don't realize it yourself? As we go through the Christian life, there are times when we feel the priceless value of the kingdom. It's very real to us. But there are also times when we don't. There are times when we feel like something else has more value. There are times when we feel like our personal blessedness and our personal happiness has taken a different path from the path of Christ and His reign. We feel like our happiness and our blessedness doesn't lie down that path, but down another path. And this is called temptation. That's what temptation is. The feeling, the very real feeling, that my personal blessedness and happiness, what I'm really getting from this, doesn't lie down the same road as the reign of God in my heart and in the world. If you don't have that feeling, it's not temptation. If you feel like and you know and you feel that following Christ and His reign in your life and in the world is the thing of greatest value, it's not a temptation. It's only a temptation when you feel like it isn't the thing of greatest value. That's what temptation is. And it always comes back to what is the most valuable. Not just in general, but to you. What is the most valuable to you? 
How does faith respond in those times when we feel like something else? Something else is more value. Our happiness lies down a different path. My personal interests have diverged from Christ's interest and the interest of his reign. Well, the most basic response of faith in those situations is this. To believe Jesus' valuation. And to change my valuation to accord with his. Jesus in these parables is telling us that the kingdom of heaven, God's reign in your heart and in the world, is the most valuable thing. It is with, you can't put a price tag on it. It is of infinite value. And that's another way of saying, yes, your blessedness and your happiness, you personally lies down this road. God has forever married His glory to not only your good, but your blessedness and your happiness. Now, this is something that Christ also got. Remember, Christ is not just God, He's also a man. And He went to the cross, to the scourging and to the grave, with this hope that was set before Him by God, in Psalm 16, which is a resurrection psalm. That in your presence, O Father, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hebrews sums that up by saying that for the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross. He understood no matter what it seemed like, no matter what it felt like, His personal blessedness and joy and happiness was completely lined up with His Father's glory and this path that was taking Him directly to the cross and to the grave. Now we know how that story ends. And that's what Jesus is appealing to when He tells the the church in in the book of Revelations He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. That is what He's getting at. And the basic response of faith is not just to shut my eyes and say, oh, well, I just have to keep trudging along. I just have to keep doing what's right. The most basic response of faith is that I believe Jesus when He tells me these things. I believe he knows more about life than I do. I believe he knows more about happiness than I do. I believe he knows more about me than I do. That's the most basic response of faith. Can you see the difference? Because there's a huge difference between saying, oh, I just have to have faith. I just have to trudge along. I just have to keep up duty, 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 duty. There's a huge difference between that and saying, no, I believe Jesus when he tells me where my happiness lies. I believe him. I believe he knows more about this than me. I believe he's gone this path in a deeper way than I'll ever be asked to go. I believe him when he tells me about what has the most value. When we lose our desire 
and our fire for Christ and for his kingdom, there's only one reason why. It's because we've lost our sense of value for that. We've lost our sense of its infinite worth. And therefore, we're not prizing it anymore. And there's only one answer for us. We must become reacquainted with the inestimable value of Christ and His reign in our hearts and in the world so that our desire is reawakened. Only then can we do anything for ourselves or for anybody else. Now, oftentimes what contributes to us losing our sense of the infinite value of Christ and His reign, well, it's just the, it's the treadmill of life, you know. All the responsibilities and duties and all the things that are going on, coupled with disappointments, things that don't turn out the way that we thought. God's sovereign will all of a sudden looks different than what we were expecting. You know, we thought we were doing this and here's what we were going to obtain and it didn't turn out like that. All of these different ways that make us feel like our own personal interests and happiness have diverged from the glory of God and the reign of Christ. But we have to realize in those circumstances that that lack is coming from within. It's not due to our circumstances. It's coming from within. And the first thing we need to tell ourselves or ask ourselves is, do you believe Jesus or do you believe yourself? Do you believe Jesus or do you believe your feelings? Who do you believe? Who do you think knows more? And we have to say, I know that I'm wrong for feeling this way. I'm off if I don't prize the pearl of great price. It's me who's off. Nothing's happened to the pearl. Nothing's happened to the treasure of the kingdom. I'm off. I'm not seeing it right. I have to come back to what Jesus tells me. You know? I imagine there could have been times later on for both of these men when they would have thought back, was it really worth it for me to sell everything I have for this pearl, for this field that had the treasure in it? Was it really worth it? Did I do the right thing? Now, what do you think that they would do when they started thinking that way? Go get the pearl out. Go get it out. Look at it. Look at the pearl. And as he begins to think and he looks at that pearl, he looks at the beauty of that pearl, its infinite value, he comes around to know, yes, I did the right thing. It was the right thing to do. And his desire for that pearl is reawakened. And he understands that he's on the right path. You get the treasure out and you look at it, and that's what we have to do. We have to go back to what Jesus has told us. We get the treasure out. We listen to what Jesus is saying. And we understand where faith comes down. Not close your eyes, grit your teeth, but do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Him?
when he tells you these things. Christ and his kingdom can be costly. In fact, Jesus assures us that they are. But they are not disappointing. If we're disappointed, something's wrong inside us. And the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that. We have to go to God. We have to say, God, I'm not thinking straight right now. I'm not feeling straight right now. And the critical thing we need to change is not our wives or our children or our jobs or our church or our husbands, but our own heart. That's what needs to be readjusted. And we have to ask God for help in changing the way we feel, the way we're perceiving things. And we need to stop focusing on what we think we're giving up. What was Lot's wife giving up? She thought she was giving up a lot. She thought she was getting a raw deal. The point is, she's totally wrong. But part of her coming around to it is like you have to stop turning around and looking. If there is a temptation there, if there is a forbidden fruit, You have to stop staring at it. <laughs> you got to stop staring at it. You got to believe Jesus what he's saying. Start looking at the pearl. Start listening to what he's saying. And in that way, God works to change our appraisal of things. And the value we put on Christ and his kingdom. And through that, he awakens the desire in us for the right things. And in that way, then, the sacrifice and the commitment, they come naturally. They are the right thing to do. They're the only logical thing to do. And our focus is not on what we're giving up, but on what we're giving. Now, Jesus concludes all of this. He asks his disciples, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying with these things? And they say, yes, Lord. And he says, okay, let me give you one final parable. It has to do with treasure also. And he gives them the par par parable of a householder, somebody who has a house. You're a house owner. You have your house. And the picture is of inviting people into the house. And when you invite them into your house and you sit them down at your table, you bring out, you have treasure. And you want to share that treasure. And so you go get it. You go get it and you bring it out and you set it before them and you let them taste it. Tell them about it. You tell them the story of how you gave up everything for this pearl or whatever it is. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says every scribe, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom. Now, scribe is a word that to us is a bad word in the Bible because every time we have the scribes coming up, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're the sniveling lawyers who have everything all twisted around and make everything seem wrong. They're the bad guys. But here Jesus is using scribe in a good way. He's saying basically, if you're my disciple, you're supposed to become a scribe. Well, a scribe is a, a learned one, a, a one who has been thoroughly educated, is thoroughly learned in the things of the reign of Christ in their own heart and in the world. He said every scribe taught in the things of the kingdom. Now, the word taught is actually the word disciple. So it's not just intellectual. Here's the facts. It's every scribe who has been discipled, every scribe who has been trained, 
Every scribe who has gone through temptations and understands the feelings like the kingdom is not the most valuable thing. And you're giving up more than you're getting. Everyone who's gone through that stuff and knows what the truth is, who's gotten the pearl out again and again and again and looked at it and understands and has lived life this way and understands that what we're receiving, can't, what we're giving up can't even be compared. I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, the things that we're getting, the sufferings and stuff we go through, are not worthy of being compared. They're not even worthy of being used in the same sentence. That's what Paul said. Paul was somebody who knew something about suffering. He knew something about hardship. He describes in 2 Corinthians all the stuff that he went through. You know, when Jesus called him, he said, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for me. That's how his relationship with Jesus started. Let me show you how much you're going to have to suffer for me, Paul. Let me show you how much it's going to cost you. Paul said in Philippians, he said, everything, everything that was mine, right down to my proud name, I give it up, is worth nothing. I give it up, it's not even worthy of being compared. Everything that I may know Christ, the know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and yes, even the fellowship of his suffering. The suffering now is a privilege to Paul. He's been shipwrecked, he's been destitute, and spit on, he's been beaten, and he's going to end up getting, he's going to die for the faith. He's going to be martyred for the faith. So everyone, every scribe who's been discipled and trained in these things, trained in these values, brings out treasure. Brings out treasure and sets it before others regarding the reign of God. He awakens value in other people, gets them to see the value awakens desire in them the way Jesus is doing. And he says, you bring out treasure old and new. Old and new. It's kind of a curious phase. But if you think about it, treasure, it doesn't matter if it's old or new, does it? Some pearl, great big priceless, beautiful pearl, treasure, gold, silver. Does it matter whether it came out of the ground a thousand years ago or yesterday? Gold is gold. Diamonds are diamonds. Rubies are rubies. Pearls are pearls. It doesn't matter if they're old and new. All from the same place. So the kingdom of God is what the world has been about from the beginning. And it is old and new. There are treasures old and new. A scribe disciple in these things is not one who pits old treasure against new treasure. Like they're against one another. Or like one is more valuable. They bring out treasure old and new. This is a, this is a, these are gold coins from a Spanish galleon that went down in the 1500s. This is some that was just minted yesterday. Brings them all out and sets them for. It's like fine aged port and fresh new dark chocolate. They go together. They go together. They don't fight one another. They go together. And that's the kind of treasures we bring out. So this is all about us understanding the value of this. Us prizing that. Us having the desire awakened within us for that. 
us again and again getting the pearl out, getting the treasure out and looking at it, listening to Jesus, believing what he says, knowing he knows more than we do, knowing he knows what he's talking about and changing ours appraisal system so we value what he values and we prize what he prized and we desire what he desires and then the commitments the sacrifices what are they what are they compared to the kingdom this is what the kingdom's about this is what the gospel is about so i commend it to you in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen